0: Welcome to the Dallas-Based Innovators Podcast. I'm Andrew Louder, founder and CEO of Dallas-based consulting firm Louder Co. There's so many great people innovating in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. This podcast aims to highlight them, the amazing things they're doing, and get behind the scenes on their approach and on them personally. At my company Louder Co., we're the innovation specialists business leaders turn to when their organization must perform better. Artificial intelligence, business transformation, and venture building projects are usually very stressful. Not with us. We believe your business will soon begin losing without an AI strategy. We create AI strategies to accelerate operations and create revolutionary new technology products. We do that because we're tired of seeing businesses that keep letting bad operations kill their growth. Through change initiatives like creating innovation hubs, improving processes, and instilling technologies, we transform companies to perform better and grow faster. Our gift to you for listening is access to our free Intro to Artificial Intelligence guide. We hit on what is AI, where is it going, and how to get it into your business. Get that free guide at louderco.com slash intro to AI. We look forward to serving you. Visit us at louderco.com for more information, insightful content, and ways to schedule our first conversation. Thank you for listening and on to our show. All right. Welcome to the dallas Space Innovator Show presented by Louder Co. I'm Andrew Louder. I'm so glad to have our next uh, special guest. It's uh, Mark Good. He is co-founder and partner at Commerce Basics. They're a technology consulting company here in town, and um, you know, they're doing amazing things, but also you know, Mark's had a pretty um, strong hand in a number of the technologies that we're experiencing today. Believe it or not, um, if you're sitting at a Starbucks listening to us right now on Wi-Fi, you should be thanking Mark. You know, Mark is uh, the pioneer that really got that going, uh, public access Wi-Fi there at Starbucks. I'm anxious to hear his story on that. Uh, So let's welcome Mark to the show. Hey, thanks, Andrew. It's great to be here, and it'll be fun to talk about a few
1: things I've done in the past and how I'm helping people today.
0: Yeah, definitely. You know, it's a wonderful introduction made by Stephen Ellis over at Plymouth AI. Uh, Stephen's a great guy. He's a mover and a shaker, uh, incredibly bright, very insightful person. Yeah, he is. He really is a very strong innovator. I'm going to have to have him here on the show rather soon. So, okay, Mark, tell us a bit uh, about yourself, a little one to two minute bio.
1: Yeah. um, I'm at the stage in life where I normally start by saying uh, I'm the uh, grandfather of eight lovely granddaughters. Congratulations. My lovelies. Uh, I have uh, six kids and uh, I'm not Catholic, but I was careless. (laughs) <laughs> um, and uh, I've been in high tech for almost four decades, and it was an accidental thing. My my undergraduate degree is in liberal arts. My graduate work is in philosophy and theology. And uh, But but what got me into high tech is I needed to feed my family. <laughs> Absolutely. So, so I was offered a consulting gig uh, in the late 70s, and uh, my promise to myself was, I'm going to go back to graduate school after a year. Uh, I've never gone back.
0: Wow! <laughs> so well, that should say something about the career you've had, right? I mean,
1: well, it's been very interesting. Um, I grew up in a home. Uh, my dad uh, actually, the, it's it's kind of interesting today. He didn't talk about it for years, but he was a uh, NSA crypto mathematician for a number of years. Wow! And uh, he never would talk about it because it was actually illegal to talk about. And uh, but he was uh, both a technologist and an innovator and an entrepreneur. So I grew up in a home listening to things about like positive cash flow, high net worth investors, (laughs) early stage, that was dinner table conversation. And so it really kind of seeped into my blood and I didn't realize how much it affected me until I moved into the business world and I realized that I had that mindset and then kind of built a career on it just because that to me was normal, right? Right. So.
0: Now, that's outstanding. So, where did you come from? Where Are you originally from Dallas? Pretty much. Yeah. My f-
1: my family moved here in uh, 1959. My dad took a job with a company, the way I like to describe it, was in the geophysical oil services business. No
0: way. My dad was a, a geophysicist as well. Okay. Well, so so this company,
1: that's how they started, mm-hmm. was serving oil and gas, which makes sense for Dallas. And then in the late 50s, 59, they decided to pivot into technology. And so uh, you're probably not on pins and needles, but if you're wondering, well, what company is that? That company is Texas Instruments. Wow. So TI started as an oil and gas services company, and then in the late 50s, they pivoted to high tech, and they needed, they decided, uh, part of it was based on the growing recognition that the federal government was going to be spending a lot of money in the defense industry and in the space program. And they needed people who had secret clearances and who had experience in the defense industry, and Dad did. So uh, he accepted a job. So we moved here in 1959. And the stuff I like to tell people is, we moved to Richardson, which is you know now we think of it as telecom quarter. Yep. We could stand on the front porch of our home, look north, and there was nothing but cotton fields. Nothing. Wow. The, the Plano was a whistle stop. Right. The closest indoor movie theater was the Highland Park Cinema at Highland Park Village and wow. the movie theater we went to is a drive-in movie theater called the Arapahoe drive-in <laughs> so uh, Golly, I've seen I can't a lot even of change. Imagine this yeah oh yeah no there was no DFW airport there was no LBJ there was no the tollway was actually a railroad did not know that yeah yeah that's that's how Dallas's transportation system was really developed by repurposing uh, underutilized or dormant, railroad lines that had been used for the cotton industry, because in the 19th century, Dallas was a major cotton trading town. Before there was oil and gas and before there was real estate, there was cotton, and it was King Cotton. And so cotton would come in in the trains, and they would all go downtown where the where the storage and the mills were and the trading floors were. And so these train lines that radiated out from the center of the city became repurposed
0: and one of them is the dallas north tollway (laughs) unbelievable yeah i'll bet you even on um back in the day when there were train tracks i'll bet you they had tolls on them Uh, (laughs) yes i'm sure they (laughs) did. would not surprise me yeah so you've seen a lot of change here in dallas oh yeah um how do you think the shift has occurred um with dallas and innovation I mean, how do you see it? Did have you seen it evolve over time? Where well, do you think we are? Well, it has. Um, there's some
1: great stories of innovation here. I think uh, one of them that uh, again people aren't aware of is that when Texas Instruments was founded, uh, and they were in their heyday. Well, they're still in their heyday, but they've, they've changed their mission a lot. But in the 60s and 70s, what the founders of TI realized is that they didn't have enough engineering talent that was available to them. So the three founders of TI founded a private university in Richardson just north of Campbell Road, which later was acquired by the University of Texas and became the University of Texas at Dallas. It's a great school. Yeah, it's a phenomenal school. And today it's considered the MIT of the Southwest. And what mo- most people don't realize is that it was started by TI as a way of developing technical talent that could feed the local technology industry. So there was that, piece and innovation. Another great period of innovation in the city from a technical standpoint occurred when uh, a there was a A spinoff from TI called MOSTEK, M O S T E K, that made DRAMs, which is a form of memory, and one of the founders was a guy named LJ Seven. And LJ teamed up with a New York research analyst named Ben Rosen, and they formed a venture capital company called Seven Rosen. And their first fund was fifty million dollars. They were located in the Galleria, which is just north of LBJ, and the and the tollway, and they funded ventures which in the 80s were positively transformative. Like one of the things they decided to do was to clone the PC. They said, we can build a, a PC clone. And so they reached into TI in Houston and they hired a guy named Rod Canyon and said, we want you to be CEO of this of this new startup. And that startup was Compaq. Wow. Um, there was another guy that was sort of a a long-haired hippie type who'd been traveling Mm -hmm. around and he had been a programmer in California and he came to them with a program that would do a spreadsheet database and graphing and he called it TRIO and uh, he'd been turned down by Ross Perot who was a pretty straight-laced guy and said, no, I'm not going to fund you and Seven Rosen funded him and said, we need to rename the company and so he had been to India on his meditative trip and he called it Lotus123. And, the, and that's where it came from. So there have been some amazing innovations. These were in the 80s and 90s. And then things went bust around 2000 and got real quiet. And now I've seen the beginnings of a resurgence in Dallas, mm-hmm. although Dallas
0: is playing catch up to Austin. But it's, it's starting to come back. Yeah. And I think personally, I, I'm really grateful to be in a town like Dallas with um, – you know, there's so much diversity here, not just in the people, but in the companies. Yep. You know, there's a, a growing startup scene. There's so many Fortune 500 corporations that are yep. headquartered here. Yep. Such a great mix of talent, of companies. You know, even you look at the Great Recession. You know, Dallas fared so well through that, you know, thankfully, uh, because of that uh, cor- corporate diversity, I believe. And, and a number of other reasons, but yeah.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Dallas is – there's no question it's a business-friendly town. Um, uh, My wife and I spent about 15 years working uh, in the Washington, D.C. area uh, consulting to the federal government, principally the Department of the Army. And while it was an eye-opening experience and changed my views of a lot of things relating to the federal government, how it operates, the military, industrial complex, et cetera – One of the really big differences is that you can clearly say unequivocally, Washington is a political town. It is a government town. And when you come to Dallas, you realize this is a business town. That's right. You know, I mean, people are friendly, they're open, and they think about business. And
0: um, I love that about Dallas. Me too. So let's go back a ways here. I want to hit on something we um, talked about at the beginning of the show related to the the Wi-Fi project at Starbucks. That was uh, was that a project you were doing uh, with as part of the Mobile Star Network company you co-founded? Yeah, I co-founded Mobile Star. Actually, I was a
1: consultant, and um, I had a uh, I had a client that worked for Advanced Micro Devices, which is a semiconductor manufacturer that has a large manufacturing facility in Austin, and I was doing some consulting. And this guy is a super bright guy. Uh, MBA from Boston University, a physicist, and he made two propositions to me. The first one was he said, Mark, I think this thing called the internet is going to become really big and is going to become <laughs> yeah. the way that most people communicate. And, and and he said that in 1995, which was very prescient. You know, today we'd call him a prophet. Back then we called him kind of nuts. <laughs> and then the second thing he said was the problem or a problem that will have to be solved before people can actually use the internet as a communications medium, because that was the kind of focus at that time. It wasn't like streaming or internet or anything like that, was connectivity is how they connect. And the way people connected in the mid-90s was with an ethernet jack or dial-up with a modem. And he said, that's going to need to become wireless. And so that started a whole journey where we began to investigate, well, what what would it look like to have a wireless network that would allow people to connect to the internet. Mm -hmm. And what we landed on was a technology that ultimately would be called Wi-Fi. And when we did the analysis, I mean, the key to any successful business is solving a problem. And we looked at all of the people that would want to communicate and needed to communicate. And we discovered that there was a a subsection of the demographic that – was communicating regularly and routinely by means of a modem, and those were management consultants. Interesting. And they were traveling and they were flying, so we needed people that had discretionary money, had a need to move a lot of data, and were already in the process of communicating. So to them, behaviorally, we weren't asking them to do anything different. We were asking them just to do it differently right? And so we then reverse engineered it down to, well, where would those people want to communicate? And it became pretty apparent. We had a little tagline, we want to support you everywhere you sleep, eat, move, and meet. So sleeping was hotels, moving was airlines, meeting was conference centers, right? Um, and eating could be a restaurant, right? Mm-hmm. So to make a a much longer story short, we started by saying, if we can get a single airline as the backbone of the network, let's do that. And in Dallas, there were two. We had no money. I mean, we were bootstrapping this entire thing. And it, plus I had a, an angel investor who, who who really believed in the vision. Wow. And so we started in Dallas and we, I love Southwest Airlines, but Southwest had nothing that would really supported the business travel in terms of a club. So we went to American, and I got in front of the Admiral Club's people. And these were just cold calls where I just sort of said, here's my value prop. I know it sounds crazy. What do you think? And they said, it's not crazy because we have people asking us, where can I plug in my computer, right? Mm-hmm. And so we got American, but American didn't want to be first. Suck like investors. Uh, every investor wants to be number two and number three. <laughs> Nobody wants to be number one, right? That's right. So American was no different. So they said, well, we don't want to be the only ones how about Hilton? And I said, sounds great. So they introduced me to Hilton. I flew to Beverly Hills. I pitched Hilton. And Hilton's pain point, which was interesting, is that business travelers were were checking into the hotel. They would go to the room. They would unplug the phone. They would plug in their computer with their modem. Mm. And they would proceed to tie up the PBX for three hours because they were downloading large PowerPoint files. And what most of your listeners don't know because they probably never experienced is 28.8 communications. What you can do in 15 seconds in Starbucks was taking three hours in a... Gosh, I couldn't live like that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, no, that's the way they lived, right? So the, the problem Hilton was having is that they had so much traffic in the PBX, it was crashing. So they had a multimillion dollar budget to upgrade PBXs just for this issue. Wow. So I said, well, wait a second. I'll put in this network, this radio network, and they can sit in the lobby or in their hotel room, and never use your PPX. And they're like, "Where do we sign?" Wow! So once we got Hilton and uh, American on board, I was able to get my Series B round done out of California Sand Hill Road, where mm-hmm. you know the investors think broadly, bigly, and have gigantically deep pockets. That's right, and. We closed the B round and one of the principals said, have you ever thought about Starbucks? And I said, like every day. Wow! And the guy said, well, let me introduce you. So I went to Starbucks and most of your listeners will not believe this, but when Howard Schultz started Starbucks, his vision was that it would be the public, he called it the third place. It's mm-hmm. not your home, it's not your office, right? So his vision was an Italian version of a pub where everybody just sits around, drinks coffee, and talks, right? So His problem was people were treating it like Dunkin' Donuts. They would come in, they would buy coffee, and they would leave. Nobody would hang around. So I said, well, I have a reason they'd hang around. He goes, what's that? Well, it wasn't him. It was one of his staff members. I said, they want to get their email. Mm -hmm. And they were like, seriously? And I was like, seriously? So we spent six months negotiating, and we finally got into Howard's office, and he had heard the whole pitch, and he goes, okay, Mark, you're telling me that if I let you put this radio in my Starbucks that people might stay another five minutes and might buy another latte. And I said, well, actually, the data shows they will stay another five minutes and they will buy another latte. And he goes, well, I don't believe you, but <laughs> since you're
0: paying for the network, we'll give it a try. Yep. And the rest of this as say, is history. Wow. That's an incredible story. Um, I mean, I wish I would have been around to, to kind of be with you through that journey. That sounds incredible. It, it, it was,
1: I will tell you, one thing, because you know, when when stories have that sort of ending, because there's also a a, a sort of a sad ending to the story from a financial standpoint, because we got blown away by nine eleven. But um, I had a marvelous, marvelous team with me, and we went through mm-hmm. a period of incredible financial constraints to the point that I had to reduce my staff from forty three to twenty five, and the remaining twenty five, I said, I can pay you as contractors. You'll have to pick up your own social security. I mean in your income tax and if and when we get this round closed then I'll go back and make you whole. So it was a high trust deal. Yeah. And and they agreed to do that. But one of – I'll never forget I had an employee named Cindy and Cindy said, Mark, would you would you just kind of keep us informed about this money raising, what it's like? And I said, sure. And I'm a good long form writer, so I would send out these kind of weekly emails mm-hmm. of of the fundraising experience. And after about two weeks, Cindy came into my office and she said, "Please stop the emails." And I said, "Why? You wanted to know?" She goes, "It's too scary." Oh wow! <laughs> yeah, it's not for everybody. It is not for everybody. And I think uh, as as we were chatting before. Uh, There is a lot of romanticism surrounding entrepreneurship and startups that, quite frankly, it's Hollywood-esque and it really doesn't have any bearing to what it's really like. I mean, for most people, it is a very difficult thing to do. Uh, The statistics on starting a business and succeeding are absolutely um, scary. I mean, back in the 90s, uh, the the statistics look like this: ninety percent of the companies that started only not well, ninety only ten percent of the companies that started ever got funded. Only ten percent of the companies that ever got funded got through some sort of exit. So it was like one percent of the startups ever got liquidity. Wow! And that was in the nineties when there was more money. There was, as
0: I like to say, there was more dollars than there were cents. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I commend you for bringing that up because a lot of times i think it is romanticized and you know, how many times as you're going through that process did you maybe have sleepless nights or some level of anxiety or some level of oh i had huge anxiety know, problems uh, just kind of a uh, doubt right and oh. you know, what's the future hold for me that sort of stuff oh
1: i i got i mean i tell people when they said well mark how 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 many times did you have to present to get your series a done i said i made 200 presentations right I mean, I went up and down the streets of Manhattan because I got my Series A done in Manhattan, and uh, and you know when you're sitting across the table from a guy that's got a, a checkbook for that's twenty, fifty, a hundred million dollars. Right, it, it, one of the one of the other things that, if your listeners don't know, it's really really important. Mm-hmm. The 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 authority to write a check. And the understanding of a business need do not necessarily co-reside in the same mind. No. Okay. So a person can be really well healed as a high-net-worth investor, as a venture capitalist, or as an investment, you know, private equity fund, and not know what the heck they're doing, <laughs> yeah. right, at all, right? Right. And so I would have discussions with people about our value proposition, and they would come back to me with objections, and I felt like saying, I need to take you to Physics 101. Right. I mean, we need to have a talk about radio, And I need to, but but you can't do that when you're sitting in the hallowed halls of money where the high priest of dollars reigns supreme, right? Because the axiom is, I know more than you do. And in reality, most of them don't, Right. right? So it really becomes an art form and it does require a lot of persistence and it does require a support system, both personally and professionally. Yep. Uh, and a lot of pivoting. You know, you have to sort of position and reposition to to match what you're selling with
0: what people are buying. Right. Product market fit. Yep. Yep. And you know, we there was a time I think it probably probably about a year or two ago, the big buzzword in startup world was grit. Right. And I don't know if there's a better word to describe it. Yeah, I think you really have to have grit because you get beat to hell, don't you? <laughs> well, you do get beat to hell, and yeah. and I think I think the other thing
1: that that people have to realize is that w- if you say I'm going to do a startup, if you're uh, in a relationship, mm-hmm. right, married, living with someone, have a partner, whatever, it, everybody sort of needs to buy into what this means. That's right, because. You know, unfortunately, your workday doesn't end at five. If you're currently employed right now and you're thinking of doing a startup, the predictability of having that check show up, you know, either every week or twice a month or whatever the frequency is, all of that goes away. And what you have to learn to live with is a monumental level of uncertainty. Right. And a lot of people find
0: it difficult, in, in and in this is not a criticism, to live with uncertainty. Right. I, you know, my firsthand experience of that is, you know, I've been doing Louderco now for about three and a half years, and I know exactly that feeling. I'm so blessed to have such a supportive wife, a very patient wife. And you know, my friends will ask me all the time, man, how, how do you do it? You know, I'm so envious of what you're doing. And I'm like, man, there's nothing to be envious about, you know, I appreciate those words, but, um, it's, it's every day is a challenge. Every day is a new challenge. And I think one of the biggest challenges is just staying positive. It is. Staying positive and I think realizing that um,
1: – uh, I, I try to – when people respond to my value proposition, whatever it is, mm-hmm. right, whatever I'm trying to do to help them, um, and they say no, like any person who's been around a biz dev a while, you want to understand why, mm-hmm. and you really want to try to separate the rejection of the value prop from the rejection of you personally. Yes. Right. Yes. And to, to realize that even though they may not find your particular service or product or solution or investment opportunity right for them, that's different than you not being a good person. That's right. Of intelligence and of integrity. Wow. So what I try to do is to maintain that sense of integrity and quality, et cetera, in all that I do – and politeness, which I think is a lost art in today's culture, <laughs> Absolutely. right? Please and thank you and follow up and you know, that kind of stuff. And then separate that from whatever I'm asking them to say yes to, right? right. And and respect, In quite honestly, I, I remember one time I was raising money for another venture in the 80s and there was this super high net worth guy, I won't use his name because he's a Dallas luminary and he came into the conference room and Um, all of his support staff, his minions, were all dressed in suits and he came in in a track suit and he listened to my pitch and he looked at me and he goes, wow, this seems really risky. And I looked at him and I said, when you leave this building, you're you're gonna go down an elevator. When you go outside, you're gonna turn around, you're gonna look back up and you're gonna see the name of our firm. Mm -hmm. I said, there's another word that you're now gonna see above it, it's Mm R-I-S-K. And I said, if you're not prepared for R-I-S-K, do not take out your checkbook. That's right. Now, I sort of challenged his manhood when I did that. Uh, but, but And he wrote a check for 100K, right? It worked. Okay. It worked. But, but the point was is I don't hide from people that whatever, if I'm raising money for a new venture, that there is risk. I mean, duh. Because the correlation to that is that's where the upside is. There is no free lunch here. No. There's no such thing as an easy deal that is not risky and has great upside. Right. Those are called commodities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Those aren't startups. Or you're doing something illegal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. And I, and I try to stay. I'm, I'm not interested in being behind bars. Right. All right. Me neither. So, Mark, let's talk more about Commerce Basics and some of the other things you're doing in the community you know, we've had a riveting conversation off the show just about the things you're doing um, in the nonprofit world. Yep. But talk to us a bit more about what you're doing today. Well, at Commerce Basics, uh, this is a consulting enterprise. Um,
1: uh, I'm fortunate to have an incredible partner who's also my wife. So right. it's a 7 by 24 business and personal relationship. Um, She has all the sheepskins, you know, undergraduate degree from Northwestern in economics and engineering, Harvard MBA, postgraduate work at Wharton and at uh, George Washington University. Super, super smart lady. And we help enterprises, both startups as well as established enterprises with everything from new business initiatives to M&A analysis. Uh, I work with some startups. Uh, I'm doing one right now with a guy, phenomenal guy, to help him get his first revenue in the door Mm -hmm. and capital formation. I'm not an investment banker, so I don't play that role. But really helping take away a lot of the mystery associated with how do you raise the money, what you do. Um, so we do that kind of stuff. We do some executive coaching as well and, and help people who say, gee, I don't have a lot of money, but can you help me? Because I like to tell people I haven't had multi-billion dollar exits, but I have made about every mistake you can make. Yep. And if I can just share with you some of the things that you might be tempted to do that I guarantee you will fail then you can avoid self-inflicted wounds.
0: (laughs) So Yeah, and people need to realize that that kind of guidance is just as valuable, I think, as anything else you could bring to the table. It it really is because,
1: um, you see, one of the problems with startups that you begin to realize once you get going in a startup or even in a, a new business initiative inside of a corporation is we do not have infinite time. No. right? We don't have infinite time. Wish we did. The, the meter's always running. It's like a football game. And so if someone can tell you, do not do these things, they are time sinks, they are time wasters, they are dead ends, they won't work, then what that really does is it frees you up to use that very precious resource that you have, which is time, in the right way. Because time is something we can't get back. It, it, it comes and then it goes. So if I can help you not do things that would be a waste of time, then, yeah, that's really valuable, right? Absolutely. Uh, in the nonprofit world, uh, I've become very involved in a, a, a group in North Dallas called Incarnation House. And what they do is they work principally with students who attend the North Dallas High School uh, 90% of whom are t- the the uh, sort of formal phrase is housing insecure. That right. means they're in and out of homelessness. Um, Dallas happens to be what one person in the city hall described as the richest poor city in America. Uh, there's an incredible divide between a wealth gap here in this city, which is pretty incredible. 90% of the students that attend Dallas Independent School District are food insecure, uh, which means that the reason they get a free lunch is because that's probably the only meal they can count on during the day. They may not get breakfast, and many of them never get dinner, right? So Incarnation House always provides a meal, dinner, but they also provide something that's incredibly important for all of us as humans that are developing and as the father of children. I know how important this is. Mm -hmm. They provide a stable place that is safe, supportive, with structure, discipline, tutoring, mentoring, and those kinds of things. And that then gives these kids the ability to develop in the context of some structure and love. Mm -hmm. And then the goal is when they graduate from high school, then they can find out what they want to do next. It may be the military. It may be... Uh, to go to college. it may be to you know become an intern in a large enterprise, pick but up a trade, pick up a trade yeah. exactly right. but to make that transition and and to move forward and th- there's a real need for this uh, in in the city of Dallas. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I'm
0: volunteering my time and services to to help them out. That's wonderful. And you mentioned a, a podcast that uh, you are doing or will be doing with them? we Will be doing with them. Yeah. Um, two things, one is the we're gonna be podcasting
1: about the staff and, and, and what they do, but one of the things that I feel passionately about, I, I'm, a, I'm a pretty serious photographer. In fact, I have a side gig as a photography business, but I also do podcasting, and yep. one of the things that I wanna do is give each one of the kids who wants to an opportunity to tell their story and a story of success, of overcoming, of winning. And part of it is because many of them have never heard themselves in a formal recording context. Mm-hmm. Secondly, for many of them, this becomes an opportunity. It's almost like a calling card that, as they seek you know, admission to college or an employer, is to say, hey, listen to this story. And so it really becomes an information deliverable, much as we're doing right, right now, that can help communicate who they are to a prospective employer.
0: That's wonderful. So tell, tell us a bit more then about some of the startups you're helping out. I, I believe you're working with Ceres Technologies? Been working with Ceres Technologies.
1: They're uh, working in a, in the area of um, really what I would call intelligent supply chain, right. um, part of the area that uh, I helped them on for a while. And I did consulting to the U.S. military for about 12 years and worked with uh, their research group on what's called dismounted soldier communications. Uh, the military has a set of communications requirements that are unlike the private sector because our forces are what we call expeditionary, which means we typically insert ourselves into a foreign domain, a foreign country, and we exert power, and then we leave. and um, you can't count on having a cell phone system there, <laughs> right? right? Yeah, <laughs> because you're the invader, right? <laughs> so, um, so, in, in when you, when uh, when Cirrus said we're interested in doing the supply chain stuff, one of the key issues is, well, how are you going to communicate this information from the the supply chain from where the product is starting to where it's going to end up? So, I provided some guidance in terms of what how the military works that problem. The military works a a series of problems that um, really have no analog in the private sector. It's it's pretty interesting and they're very complicated. Um, That's one. Another startup that I'm working on which is really exciting, um, there's a fellow that worked in um, microwave engineering for nearly 40 years for companies like uh, Alcatel and actually managed the rollout of of Sprint's 4G network. And most of us, of course, take for granted that we can turn on our cell phones and kind of wherever we are, we get a signal and it works and we can talk and move data and so forth. And the technology behind that is extremely complex. And deploying those networks is very complex. And as we move now into 5G – without boring your readers with a lot of the (laughs) technical details about 5G, 5G is probably one if not two orders of magnitude more complex than 4G from a deployment standpoint. So this friend of mine, he had kind of semi-retired, and he was bored. And here he is sitting on 40 years of insights into how you do RF deployment. So he reached into his retirement fund, He built a software development team, built a SaaS product, and then he approached me and he said, can you help me find customers?
0: (laughs) He said, yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a major pain point. I mean, when people talk about 5G, the number of radio transceivers, which is what they are, they're not towers, they're transceivers that will be located, is... Again, one to two orders of magnitude more. It's it's what we call high cell side densification. And so I've worked with, his name is Alan McCulley, I've worked with Alan now for almost two years, guiding him from a business development standpoint, a technology standpoint, uh, helping find investors, helping him assemble his fundamental team. And I'm pleased to say that next week we'll get our first order. And I believe that by the first quarter we'll get a whole lot more orders, and we'll move quickly into positive cash flow. So, yep. so that's an example of right. what you know at Commerce Basics. That's the kind of stuff that we do.
0: I feel like you live one of the most interesting lives yeah. I've <laughs> ever encountered. It's wonderful. So let's do this. Let's move into the lightning round. Okay, going to shift gears a bit. Um, we get maybe a little bit more on the personal side sure. of yourself here. Sure. But yeah, tell me if you could go back, or if you could write a note to your younger self, uh, what would you say? Oh wow, um, I would say I would say,
1: be open, trust the universe, uh, and I'm a guy. My parents told me this story when I was a little kid. I always asked the question why, and they mm-hmm. gave me a book a little owl that said why. So I'm a why guy, not a wise guy, a uh-huh. why guy. Yep. And so um, and I'm insanely curious. I think I think our, people I hope will rediscover curiosity. Read widely. I'm sort of a polymath. Mm-hmm. I'm a YouTube addict and I and I watch all kinds of things. Yep. And I think being well-rounded curious and being willing to follow those things in your professional career um, is a good thing. I was intimidated about doing that. And, and it was funny, when I was offered a job in technology, I actually wrote the, the founder of the company and said, I hate computers. And he goes, I get it, but you need to feed your kids. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I said, okay. And so here I am. I've spent my entire year with competing and my, my career in competing and communications, and I love it now. Yeah. So uh, so that's one thing I would say, yeah. But you threw yourself at it and learned everything you could. And I continue to do that. I yeah. mean, uh, when podcasting came to my attention, uh, my favorite podcast is The Daily with Michael Barbaro. hmm. And I produced a podcast series for one of my clients and he said, Well, what is it gonna sound like? And I said, if you go listen to the daily, that's my bar. Yep. Now Berbero has twenty five members on his staff. I have me, mm-hmm. but what it required is that I learn audio, I learn post processing, I understand the entire signal chain and content and storytelling and what I had to learn all that.
0: Right. And I did it because yep. and, and I never want to stop learning. That's outstanding. Yeah, it's a great lesson for everybody. So, I feel like um, you may have covered this, but I have to ask it. Who or, or what has been the greatest influence on your life? There've been several people. Um
1: I and I and I tell this to my children because they will come to me from time to time. I have a wonderful relationship with my kids. I've I'm no longer National Bank of Dad. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm Congratulations. I, yes, I know. If it's a major it's a major achievement. Um, I'm the coach, I speak when I'm spoken to, I offer advice only when requested. Mm-hmm. Um, but, and they do. And I'm always honored when they say, hey dad, what do you think? And what I try to tell my kids is, um, which is one of the lessons I learned in life, is I do not want to tell you answers. What I want to do is train you to solve problems. And so with all of my children, they are great problem solvers. Um, I had a dad who was very influential in my life. He nurtured my curiosity. Um, He also would not give me answers. He actually sold encyclopedias as a way to pay for his school. And so when Mm -hmm. we were growing up, we had a world book encyclopedia. And he would come home from TI, and then my brother and I were both very curious kids, and we would say, Daddy, and then we would ask him a question, and his answer was always, look it up. up. So we'd look it up, and then if we couldn't get an answer, then he would work with us to frame the problem properly to get the answer. Mm -hmm. So my dad was a huge influence in my life. Um, I had some professors in college that uh, were great influences in my life. I've had uh, family members a father-in-law who was a great influence in my life. I've had um, managers, my best managers, Mm -hmm. I worked for IBM for four years. My best manager was a woman named Sandy Miller. In fact, the best managers I've had in my life have all been female. Interesting. I'm a huge proponent of women in leadership and women in business. The statistics, and this is a, a bit of a digression, but the statistics are that if you have women in leadership in an entrepreneur in an entrepreneurial context the venture is more likely to succeed than if a male is running it That's, i believe it yep yeah. and secondly women drive for consensus whereas men tend to think of negotiation as win lose zero sum right so um so i had i was really privileged to have team members at ibm who were female and then a female boss and I learned a ton from – her name was Sandy Miller. Mm-hmm. I learned a ton from Sandy, and I'm very grateful for that. So, But honestly, my career, I stand on the shoulders of so many people who gave generously of their time, right. their advice, and their guidance. Um, I tell people I don't think I've had a, an original thought in my life. I think where I've added value is that I've implemented a few things. Mm-hmm. But um, – no, I'm just the happy beneficiary of some really
0: wonderful people. Got it. That's that's amazing. I know you you're a constant learner. Yep. Is there anything you're reading about right now?
1: Um, well, I'm very interested, and I and I think it's because of my age. I'm spending a lot of time trying to understand um, what the future holds for us. I'm I'm very concerned about global warming, climate change. Mm-hmm. It's a real thing. It's not. Yeah, yeah. I, will, I will offer a nakedly political view. I think that the oil and gas industry has treated climate change the way the tobacco industry treated the issue of does smoking cause cancer, mm-hmm. which is to say, well, we need to study it. And the answer is the data is in, the climate is changing, um, and that's a problem. That is an existential problem. That is a giant problem and I worry about that because it is having profound effects, even if I just localize it to the United States. Mm -hmm. And what's happening in the Western United States in terms of drought and fires and floods and so forth, what's happening in the central part of the country with flooding uh, and then violent and extreme weather. So yes, I'm reading a lot about climate change. A second thing that concerns me is that the nature of work is changing, the nature of the relationship between corporations. And again, this will sound nakedly uh, political, but when Karl Marx talked about the contest between capital and labor, I think we're finding ourselves in 2019 in a situation that's very much reminiscent of 1920, 100 years ago, where there was a large accumulation of capital and a giant wealth gap. And people who were employees did not have collective bar- bargaining. Um, what most Americans don't realize today is as an example, the fact that we think a work week should be 40 hours right. is a result of the unions. The fact that we have the thing called a weekend is a direct result of union negotiations because most uh, factories operated six days a week, not seven. Uh, health insurance was a benefit that corporations introduced during World War II as a way of attracting female employees to come work for
0: them. I did not realize that.
1: Yeah. The reason the the healthcare systems in Europe are managed by the government – isn't because people say it's because they're socialist. No, because after World War II, there were no private institutions left because of the destruction. And the only institutions that were capable of organizing healthcare were the fledgling governments that were digging out of the rubble of World War II. So those healthcare systems grew out of massive destruction and they and the government was the only enterprise or entity that was capable of organizing healthcare professionals, right? Because the United States didn't experience that level of destruction, healthcare came as a corporate benefit and that's its legacy and that's where we think of, oh, it's a private sector thing and it's free market, no, nonsense, right? Yep. So I think healthcare is gonna be a big issue. Climate change is a big issue. Um, I'm very concerned about the millennial uh, and Gen Z uh, demographic because of the unconscionable level of student debt that they're carrying. The nature of work has changed. Department of Labor says 40% of the workforce is independent contractors. And what that has meant, unfortunately, is that there there would be clients have powered down on pricing. People find it difficult to make a living. As you and I were talking about before the show, uh, United Way has pointed out that in Texas, 48% of the population could not handle a $400 emergency, nor can they afford in-home broadband. 72% can afford in-home broadband in a $400 emergency, but nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. These are big problems, and um, I, I am hopeful that through our political process, we can begin to fix these things. We've done it before. We did it in the early 20th century and when we came through the Great Depression and FDR and Eisenhower and Kennedy and Johnson and all those guys, even Nixon. I mean, heck, I mean, I grew up with Tricky Dicky and Watergate and even Nixon. I mean, he created the EPA. Most Americans today have no idea what our cities look like in the 60s. They were smog-filled, nasty things. The Cuyahoga River in Ohio would burn during the day, would catch fire. Yeah, I mean, this is stuff, you know, again, the generations don't know. So all of this stuff, governments have done well. And I'm hopeful that in the coming weeks and months and years, that the American people will re-empower themselves to take control of some of these things and give my children and my grandchildren, mm-hmm. speaking very selfishly, um, a better than even opportunity of having
0: a good life. Yeah. I think that's what every parent hopes for, right? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Speaking of which, what do you look forward to the most each weekend?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Uh, my wife and I have this marvelous tradition. On Saturdays, uh, we do our grocery shopping. But we've, we made a commitment um, early this year that we would move to largely a plant-based diet for a variety of health reasons, plant-based whole food. And so we start, we go to the farmer's market uh, because I'm really a big believer in keeping money in the local economy. Mm-hmm. I like to buy product or you know fruits and vegetables that are right out of the ground locally and eat them and consume them. There's a lot of health benefits that comes from that. Then we go to Trader Joe's. And nice. then what we can't get at TJ's, we go to Whole Foods slash Whole Paycheck. Right? <laughs> get a little bit of that, right? Yep. And then we'll head over to Kroger's to buy something. We, we shop around what we call the edges of the store where everything's fresh, right? Wow. So then we come home and our refrigerator looks like a garden thing. It's got like it's a ton of green in it. And then we fix ourselves a really great meal. And we really enjoy the process of cooking and eating. And then I must confess, we are uh, binge watchers. And we have a predilection for anything that is produced in the UK. We love British mysteries. Um, We're right now watching The Crown. Season three is phenomenal. I'm a history major, and it is laying bare some history about the royal family that is absolutely fascinating in terms of family dynamics and mm-hmm. politics and so forth. So, so yeah, that's what I—I re- I mean, and this is a Saturday ritual. It's the shopping. It's the cooking. It's spending the time together and and that kind of thing. And then, of course, the grandkids, you know. I mean, we always yeah. look forward to ways that we can cross our paths with the grandkids.
0: And it, did I hear they're all girls?
1: Yes, it is an estrogen surge. Wow. My life is all pink. <laughs> um, uh, but they are absolutely precious. And what's what's amazing is they're all very unique and very different. Uh, they share some things in common. And of course, as a parent, it's really funny for me, not for my kids, to watch as my kids' grandchildren age up and replicate the behavior, particularly the adolescent behavior that I went through with my children to see that in my granddaughters, my my kids get all bent out of shape about, well, dad, she's doing this, she's doing that. Right. And I just can't help but laugh, go, yeah, I know. <laughs> I watched you do it too. In fact, I got the pictures. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. just, history repeats itself. It does. It I does. Life is a circle. I mean, yeah. it really is true. Yeah.
0: Well, Mark, let's go ahead and bring this uh, show to a close. So what's it like for a customer or client to work with you, get going with you?
1: Uh, Really, really easy. I mean, we'll leave contact data on the the show notes here, but reach out. Um, You know, I like to start every discussion with not only getting to know the client, but honestly asking the question, can I actually add value? can I actually make a difference. If I can't make a difference, I'll tell you right up front. I am sorry, I'm not your guy, I can't help you. I'll try to find someone who can, but I I may not. Right. And then the question is, well, what do you need done? And how do we size and dimension that? And then what how do we how do we pay for that? And and we have different mechanisms of compensation depending on the kind of enterprise you are. You know, if you're if you're small in your startup or in in there's opportunities that make sense. We're we're prepared to take more risk if you're a if you're a medium sized enterprise or a larger enterprise, then we'll approach it differently. Mm-hmm. But I mean, we've had clients that range from literally the secretary of the army, mm-hmm. um, who had a hundred and twenty billion dollar budget, to um, startups. So yep. I've worked in boardrooms and I've worked in garages. So it doesn't really matter, right? That's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> How does somebody reach out to you then? Uh, email address is mark at commercebasics.com and basics is spelled with an X. And my phone number is. Hold uh,
0: on. You don't need to give the phone number. Oh, no. That's OK,
1: because it's a it's a Google number. Oh, so, uh, OK. So I always You're get. Safe. Oh, yeah. I'm safe. It's 469
0: 305 1939. There you go. Yeah. Well, Mark, this was a very enlightening show. Thank you so much for all the time and um, the knowledge that you shared with, with me and our, our uh, listeners. But uh, that'll bring our show to a wrap. Thank you all so much for listening to the Dallas-Based Innovators podcast uh, provided by LouderCo. I'm Andrew Louder signing off. That's our show for today. We hope you took away something valuable. Be sure to visit LouderCo at LouderCo.com for more. Thank you again and stay tuned for more from Dallas-based innovators.